Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to our panel uh, on Ukraine and Turkish policy uh, since the beginning of the war in Ukraine. And uh, my name is Kilic Kanat. I'm the research director at SETA uh, Foundation here in Washington, D.C. We have three panelists today, and we will discuss first the situation of the ground as of today in Ukraine, especially after the beginning of Ukrainian counteroffensive last week because for many people it was a, a surprising attack and the, the pace and the uh, success of the Ukrainian forces impressed a lot of military analysts uh, so far. And we will discuss whether it's sustainable, uh, counteroffensive, what will be the consequences of it, especially uh, any change in Russia's policy, Russia's military strategy on the ground. And following that, we will discuss Turkey's policy towards this war. We have three panelists today, Kadir Ustun from SETA DC, Richardson and Yevgenia Gaber. And we will start with you, Yevgenia. What's happening? What happened last weekend? And do you think it is sustainable? Do you think it will be, will be a continuous attack? Because the attack was concentrated mostly on the north. Do you expect any changes on the south as well? Uh, hi, everyone. Thank you for having me. Uh, well, obviously, this counteroffensive it has come as a surprise for many military experts and many political scientists as well. Uh, for Ukrainians, I would not say that was a big surprise. Uh, the pace with which uh, Russians have been withdrawing their forces might be a slight surprise, but not actually success. Um, I would name a couple of reasons which made this successful counter-offense possible. One is uh, about, first of all, military people and Ukrainian resolve to fight this uh, war and to win this war. Because first of all, it is about people on the ground, it is about uh, armed forces, it is about civilians, it is about all different uh, people from different sectors, uh, from different regions who have invested a lot into this uh, counteroffensive and are still ready uh, to die, to be killed, but still to fight for their own lands and homes and their own country because there is no other Ukraine. Second, it's of course about the uh, arms supplies, which we started getting from the West. And this is something that we all have been talking about for many, many weeks and months, uh, saying that we need a lot of uh, sophisticated modern weapons and we can change the situation on the ground. Uh, I think this was also a major success for Ukrainians now uh, to prove that we were right and to prove that all talks about Russian army being undefeatable, uh, no chance uh, to uh, have this victory on the battlefield. We only need to have peace talks and negotiations. This um, has all been proved false. And with this uh, successful counteroffensive, we actually proved that what we've been talking about so far, we need more weapons to have um, Russians first defeated on the battlefield and then maybe getting back to the negotiations table uh, right. So uh, third uh, important thing here is uh, about psychological uh, changes, which uh, happen not only in Ukraine, but also in Russia, and I think in other societies in the West as well. Uh, apart from being a sustainable, I would say a very sustainable success on the battlefield, and we're expecting to have uh, maybe not the same uh, pace of withdrawal of Russian forces, in Kherson region, but still again, um, the liberation of new territories in the uh, south of Ukraine. 
we have already liberated a couple of uh, cities, a couple of villages there, and now many Russian soldiers are actually negotiating the con uh, conditions to surrender. So I expect it to be not that much about maybe military action as it was in the East, but rather these kind of many soldiers just leaving their positions and going back to Russia if they can, or uh, surrendering if they cannot. But psychologically, that was also uh, very important. The morale and motivation of Russian army has always been very low. Now it's a catastrophe. It's almost zero. So many soldiers, many uh, representatives of different uh, Rosgvardia armed forces, uh, private military companies, uh, the so-called LNR, DNR, these terror organizations we have there, they do not want to fight, they do not uh, trust their generals, and they do not um, trust Putin's regime uh, generally. So uh, one of the important uh, shifts to, to, to look at here is uh, the dynamics inside Russia, because for the first time since the start of this war, we see that there is a fear to actually declare uh, mobilization in Russia because there will be no people willing to go to Ukraine. And we've heard the statement that um, actually no new forces will be sent to Ukraine anymore from Russia. Um, and uh, no one is gonna uh, fight uh, on the ground coming from the new regions of Russia like Moscow, St. Petersburg or something else. Last point here, not to take too much of our time, it's yet too early to uh, feel relaxed and to talk about our common victory here because what Russia is doing, it's changing its tactics and its strategy, moving from the um, battlefield from actually military uh, campaign uh, there to all kind of hybrid attacks, uh, nuclear terrorism, power stations, terrorism, attacks on critical infrastructure in Ukraine. So I uh, now my sense is that we will see a lot of uh, more uh, shellings and sorry, missiles, missile attacks uh, coming to, uh, uh, to, to Ukraine and to different uh, parts of Ukraine, to nuclear power plants close to them, at least, to other power stations, uh, to uh, wheat storages, grain storages, to starve Ukrainians to death in Russian logics, to not uh, let us uh, go through this winter with any kind of electricity, heat, public trans transportation, and to basically undermine this public resolve uh, to fight this war to the end, which of course is not the case because we're anyhow gonna fight this war till the end. Thank you very much, Evgenia. Rich, uh, what do you think about this uh, last week's counteroffensive and do you think it will be sustainable? And in addition to that, do you think there will be any change on European support level to uh, war in Ukraine uh, especially with the beginning of winter uh, in European countries. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here with you uh, and the other panelists. As a military, as a retired military professional, uh, what stands out for me about the counteroffensive is the careful operational design. I think it's important here to differentiate, as military analysts do, between the different levels of war. There's tactical operational and strategic. Strategic at the top end is where military integrates with diplomacy and economic factors, the domestic political trends in each country. Uh, the tactical level at the other end is where we see engagements and the use of weapons and small engagements between the different types of forces. But the most critical level in some ways is that middle level, the operational level. And this is where you do what's called campaign design. And this is where you take a series of tactical engagements 
and small fighting in disparate locations and weave them together like a tapestry to achieve a political effect. And this is a hard thing to do. The Russians tried. And in some ways, since the beginning of the conflict, the Russians have had the strategic advantage. Why? Because it's a bigger country, right? Population advantage of three or four to one, bigger forces, uh, generally more modern equipment at the start of the conflict. And some people thought perhaps a, a more unitary uh, political establishment in terms of uh, the conduct of the war. But of course, those strategic factors have been shifting. Now, this particular offensive wove together several tactical engagements, including a feint down near Kherson and a number of uh, local engagements in the Kharkiv Oblast and then moving towards, of course, Izium, which was really a crucial junction to retake. So I've been impressed at how they've woven together these elements into something that really seized a big amount of territory. Now, is it sustainable? No and yes. It's not sustainable because this was designed as a discrete operational uh, counteroffensive, right? And in all conventional wars, it's like a boxing match. There's tactical blow and counter blow. There's operational thrust and counter thrust. None of them is sustainable in the long term because each of them, you need a reset afterwards. You need new reinforcements, new ammunition, and a new plan as the enemy adjusts to what you're doing. This is the operational level of war. But what it has done is it's created momentum. And we can see from some of the comments, uh, commentary out of Moscow, the new types of, uh, and there was a city uh, council that was uh, all fired on mass, I think, or threatened with legal action in Russia uh, today or yesterday because they are criticizing the conduct of the war. So this is not the uh, very heroic, but very marginal uh, pro-democracy, anti-Putin criticism that we've heard and that the West supports. But this is the patriotic Russian sentiment saying you're botching this war. And to have a major counteroffensive at the operational level that seizes uh, a large territory, liberates uh, many Ukrainian towns and, and regions that had been taken by the Russians previously, starts to affect that strategic calculus. At the same time, as you mentioned, European support has been sustained, although incomplete. Uh, the U.S. continues to go back to Congress to get more money uh, for more weapons and these precision weapons, uh, as, as well as uh, some help from Turkey and other countries. The Bayraktars, of course, that we'll talk about, have shifted the ground at the tactical level as well. So what is sustainable, I think, is this shift at the strategic level. The fact that Russia, which frankly has the harder task, when you are on the strategic offensive, your goal is to win by defeating the enemy. When you're on the strategic defensive, which Ukraine is, you really just have to survive intact and take back what you can as you can. The pressure grows as time goes on, on the strategic offender, so to speak, that whoever is attacking and trying to change the status quo. So I see pressure mounting on Russia from this. That's sustainable. This new dynamic, uh, which, which is more pressure on Moscow as they have failed to reach their war aims, that's sustainable. But this particular offensive will come to an end as, as uh, fall and the winter weather sets in. One more follow-up question. Do you expect any change? You said there may be some domestic backlash against uh, the handling of the war uh, in Russia. Do you expect any change in Putin's uh, strategy now, declaration of war or uh, draft decisions from him? Well, you know, I'd like to think uh, that as a rational actor, we, we should assume rationality, uh, even if he has the uh, reputation for irrationality. It's rationality in some ways is uh, sort of part of how we assess international relations. In a rational world, he would adjust his calculations because his cost-benefit analysis has to be different now. His costs have gone up dramatically, especially the economic costs as the continued sanctions uh, wear on him. But I'm trying to think of a previous example where Putin has backed down. 
uh, from any conflict, even when it wasn't going the way that he wanted to. I think he'll see this through until he collapses. His health is rumored not to be great. And I, I still uh, think it, it's possible that at some point, some combination of forces within the Russian military intelligence and so forth, uh, you know, gives him the Novichok treatment or something like that. So I think he'll be removed before he changes his mind. Uh, but I think the chances of him not being able to remain in power will rise as the continued lack of success at the strategic level persists. Thank you very much. And Kadir, your perspective about this counteroffensive and potential consequences of it for the war? So I think this is, um, I mean, both Rich and Yevgenia explained it really well, but uh, it's probably um, a short burst. Uh, we might uh, go back to, you know, some sort of Russian counter-counteroffensive in the months ahead. I agree, you know, their morale is pretty bad, their logistics are bad, and it's, it has been that way since the beginning, and that's creating a lot of pressure inside Russia. But just like Rich just mentioned, um, we can expect a double down on Putin's part, but uh, that the shape and form of that doubling down may be different. So he, he tends to kind of take a break, make, you know, adjust uh, the forces and then uh, move forward. In other scenes, we've seen that kind of uh, thing in Syria and elsewhere, uh, but it, the situation is very different in Ukraine. So, um, and there is, this is, you know, strengthening uh, Ukraine's hand in any kind of potential, you know, ceasefire and agreement that Turkey has been pushing for. Uh, we are not there yet, we are probably far uh, because neither side is is talking uh, at all at this point. Um, but in the, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if we, in a month or two, or you know, a couple months down the road, uh, we would be talking about a um, Russian offensive on uh, elsewhere. The current situation is definitely in Ukraine's uh, favor. They they have shown you know serious resilience and strength, and they're now taking it, you know, taking advantage of the Russian weaknesses on the ground, but uh, politically having paid, paid so much uh, already, uh, I don't know if Putin is willing to give up and pull out at this point. And uh, some of the voices that Rich mentioned inside Russia uh, can be more dangerous. They're talking about either like maybe going all in, meaning what they're not mentioning is of course, some sort of nuclear thing on the ground, and they have already signaled they might do that. So the, uh, while Putin's calculation is being uh, un, is under pressure to change soon, that calculation may not change for the better for the for the Ukrainian side. So we might be entering even a more dangerous uh, phase of this uh, war. Um, yeah, let me stop there. Okay, let's start with uh, now Turkey's the main topic of our panel today, Turkey's policy since the beginning of the Ukraine war. And let me start with Kadir. Tell us Turkey's policy first. What was Turkey trying to do? And do you think Turkey's policy so far has been successful? So um, Turkey, you know, they <laughs> Turkey had very strong relations with both 
Russia and Ukraine, especially on the trade side, uh, tourism, and then they were taking it to next level, especially with uh, Ukraine uh, in terms of uh, military hardware. Uh, they were starting to cooperate um, even um, uh, in, 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 in the defense sector. A defense relationship was starting to burgeon in many ways. And then the war starts. Uh, Turkey, of course, um, you know, quick, rather quickly, you know, announced that they wouldn't let uh, military uh, warships to go through the straits, which is very important for for the Black Sea security, the situation in the Black Sea. Um, Russia's offensive has already changed uh, the balance of power to some extent, at least in the Black Sea region. So that that will remain unless you know Ukraine uh, is able to um, take those uh, uh, take the coast in the Black Sea coast uh, fully. Uh, the Russia Russian presence in the Black Sea has already increased. So that's the direct strategic um, gain, quote unquote, for Russia. Uh, several, you know, NATO countries are are uh, on the Black Sea coast. Um, so that's the, that's one of the important security strategic uh, things that Tur Turkey was looking at. And then the other thing was obviously economy and post-pandemic world uh, economic um, situation around the globe. Um, the energy sources these have been all kind of lopsided. Um, and many countries are suffering from uh, inflation now, et cetera. So Turkey wanted a quick uh, resolution, quick uh, you know, ceasefire and then negotiations. And there were some early successes on that part. Uh, they were able to bring both you know, foreign ministers from two countries to Turkey in Istanbul. They had meetings and uh, there was a lot of optimism at the time, but uh, of course, Putin was not ready, Russia was not ready for any kind of piecemeal, let's say, uh, success at that point. And it looked like, you know, they needed to do what they can do on the ground and see if they can, I mean, the goal for Putin is, I think, in my opinion, to take all of Ukraine eventually. So it's just another phase right now from his perspective. So he wasn't going to make any kind of meaningful agreement, but nevertheless, uh, Turkey wanted to bring the sides together and get a ceasefire and uh, start uh, eventual talks. While the West, you know, Europe and the United States were going uh, for full sanctions policy, isolate uh, Russia uh, and create unity within NATO. And in that part, uh, they tolerated Turkey's policy because uh, you know you don't want to show friction within NATO. But at the end of the day, Turkey did not you know join the Western sanctions, partly because of the economic reasons, partly also that Turkey wanted to play a you know special role in bringing the sides together diplomatically and score an eventual uh, agreement between the two. But uh, they haven't been successful largely because neither side is ready for that. Just like Evgenia mentioned, uh, Ukraine feels like they need military victory first on the ground uh, and have a strong hand before they can 
you know, and of course, like there, there were, um, uh, there were some things that happened on the ground that basically killed any kind of uh, goodwill uh, that may have existed at the very beginning. But Turkey continues to push. They continue to push for the grain exports deal that was critical for a lot of countries. That was successful. Uh, soon afterwards, President Erdogan visited, you know, uh, President uh, Zelensky in Ukraine. Uh, they talked about reconstruction already. So part of the problem here is that both Russia and Ukraine, this, this war is now kind of in the eastern part of Ukraine and it's localized part of the country Ukraine in Ukraine is is can already start reconstruction in many ways uh, there's a lot of western support and so uh, Turkey wants to play a role in that as well uh, there's already a lot of Turkish investments and you know um, construction business etc uh, so um, I think Turkey tried to follow a, a multi-layered policy, tried to keep a balance, uh, not sacrificing uh, its relations with either country because there is a huge energy dependence on Turkey's part, uh, just like many European countries, uh, somewhat less dependent than, than some of the European countries, but nevertheless. Um, so they tried to balance this so far that they've had some significant successes in terms of protecting Turkish interests and making sure, uh, you know, um, the strategic and the, and the economic interests are protected. But in terms of bringing an end to the war, uh, the conflict, of course, uh, that's, that's probably uh, premature uh, in many ways. Let me stop there. Thank you very much, uh, Rich. Well, the uh, frustrating thing to, to hear from my perspective when we look at Turkish, uh, the Turkey's role in the Ukraine conflict is this uh, use of the term fence sitting. And you often hear people ask, when is Turkey going to have to pick a side? When is Turkey going to get off the fence, so to speak? But I, I think it's not quite the right way to frame this. In my view, Robert Pearson, a former U.S. ambassador to Turkey, had it about right in February or March when he said, mm -hmm that Turkey is allied, uh, closely partnered with and allied with by agreement with Ukraine, but as you said earlier, also not trying to sacrifice its relationships with Russia. Uh, Russia is a frenemy for, for Turkey, and that's very different. They're a very important frenemy, uh, but a country with which Turkey has clashed through proxies in multiple places, including Syria, Libya uh, and Azerbaijan. So they're at dagger points in certain areas, but they're neighbors and they have important economic ties. So without sacrificing those ties or exacerbating the other conflicts with this frenemy, Turkey has been very committed to uh, the continued sovereignty of Ukraine because they like Ukrainians for sure, but also because they need Ukraine as a counterweight to Russia. It would be a strategic disaster for Turkey to have uh, Ukraine subsumed under a broader, uh, greater Russian state, because that would be a country that had distinct military and geographic advantages against Turkey in the Black Sea region. It would turn the Black Sea into more or less a Russian lake with a small NATO littoral on the south and on the west. So in my view, Turkey's been pretty consistent since 2017. Uh, there's been a military training agreement. It's uh, seen some uh, training of commandos and other military units back and forth. 
2019, of course, there was the, the agreement to sell Bayraktar drones, uh, which have continued to flow both replacement parts and new systems from Turkey uh, to Ukraine. And although we don't see as many videos as we saw in the early days of the war, it's clear that the integration of Bayraktar is not just for strike uh, with, with the MAMLs and the other munitions, but also for intelligence to give the Ukrainian forces excellent real-time visibility of where the, the Russian forces are at is an incredible force multiplier. Now, with uh, MLRS and HIMARS, other systems, artillery systems from the West, uh, Bayraktar no longer stands out as the silver bullet, right? But it is one important piece in a very sophisticated layered defense and operational capability that the Ukrainians have. Uh, th there have continued to be drones, I, I find this particularly interesting, that have been crowdfunded by European countries, Latvia and some others. And in a number of cases, uh, the Bayraktar family, who's very close, of course, to the, the government in Turkey, has gone on to gift those Bayraktars that were purchased by crowdfunding and allow the crowdfunding uh, money to go directly to Ukraine as well. So that's an important type of support. In 2020, there was a broader framework agreement on military cooperation that was signed and that called for uh, defense industrial co-production. So uh, support to Turkey's efforts to develop uh, motors for its aircraft and so forth, and, and also uh, co-production of drones. February of this year, there was a free trade agreement. Uh, so, and then of course, Erdogan's uh, visit to, to Ukraine later in the year. So when I look at all these things, I don't see fence sitting. I, you know, I don't see that there's anything short of full commitment to, to Ukrainian survival and sovereignty. Uh, and this includes Crimea, frankly, because the, the Turkey has never recognized the Russian annexation of Crimea. So this is strong, uh, practical, diplomatic and military support. I think there are many in Europe and in the States who don't share the sense of vulnerability that, that Turks feel that comes from being neighbors with Russia and being economically intertwined with Russia. So it's a little convenient for us in the West to say Turkey should do more, get off the fence. If it's 60-40 in favor of Ukraine, drop the 40 and just punish Russia. It's not that simple in this neighborhood. So I, I think we should conceptualize this not as fence sitting, uh, but as a very sort of long-sided uh, and fairly effective balancing game, typical of states, middle-sized powers in the middle of Eurasia. You, you pick a winner, but uh, you try not to do so in a way that burns all the bridges with the loser. And I think Turkey clearly wants Russia to be the loser in the gambit to try to seize and absorb Ukraine, but does not want Russia to be the loser in civilizational terms or to totally collapse. Because were there to be... Uh, sort of major dislocations in Russia, you know, violence against the regime, a forcible overthrow of Putin, civil fighting, something like that. That would be that would be trouble for Turkey, too. Uh, were the West and NATO to achieve sort of a, their own victory because of Ukraine's victory so that Ukraine becomes totally integrated with the West and perhaps even a member of NATO? This would also arguably not be in Turkey's interest because Turkey benefits from having this sort of this strategic balance in the Black Sea and in Eastern Europe. It, it frankly magnifies uh, Turkey's diplomatic role and strategic standing in the area. So I think all of this means that Turkey is essentially assessed early in the conflict or even before this round of conflict as early as 2017 and before and, and decided that it needed to stand you, with Ukraine, but to do so in this uh, sort of hedged manner. And from that perspective, I think they've been successful. Uh, where it goes from here, depends. I, I think there is a possibility that, that uh, at some point Putin uh, takes the prudent path of having some sort of a negotiated solution. If they do, if Putin and the Russian side do 
decide to pursue serious negotiations. I don't know who else besides Turkey could be the intermediary for that because of the fact that most of Europe and the United States have come down so hard on one side, not 60-40, but 99 to 1 or 100 to 0, that removes their role as potential mediators. So I, I don't think there is another potential mediator out there besides Turkey. So that's one possible uh, direction that this could develop in. All in all, I, I think as allies uh, with Turkey, the United States and NATO, while understandably you know, wanting to see a little bit more robust punishment of Russia, should take into account these uh, factors unique to Turkey's geopolitics and, and national interests and say that they're, they're kind of where they need to be at this point. Thank you very much, Rich. Yevgenia, floor is yours. Uh, yes, thank you so much. Uh, well, I, I want to start saying that Ukraine really appreciates uh, all efforts that Turkey uh, has been putting in uh, the peaceful settlement of this uh, conflict, or rather Russian aggression on Ukraine, uh, all uh, positive and constructive role that Turkey has played in negotiating or facilitating the grain deal, some other meetings, uh, it's all seen, it's all noticed, and it's all very much appreciated in Ukraine. Uh, with this being said, I would say that uh, there is time to scatter stones and there is time to gather them. There is time for balancing and there is time for taking sides. Mm -hmm. Um, the uh, situation on the ground is very dynamic, and the uh, war generally is not the same now as it used to be even in February or in March. So uh, with these dynamics happening there, uh, I'm not only talking about uh, some ethnic moments uh, like mass atrocities uh, which are committed in Ukraine, war crimes, uh, all new cases that made any kind of negotiations impossible between uh, Ukraine and Russia, and the very fact that we're talking about balancing between an aggressor state and the victim of that aggressor. But I would rather talk about the pragmatic interests of, Tur of Turkey. Uh, because as um, Rich mentioned, of course, uh, any country would first think about its own national interest, which is absolutely okay and which is uh, pragmatic and which is uh, which is uh, very real political style and that's the world we're living in. But then looking from the point of view even of Turkey, I do not see any additional uh, advantages that this balancing policy would bring to Turkey now. Uh, first, uh, let's look at that from the point of view of Ukraine. Uh, you have a partner in Turkey, which we love, which we appreciate and which we respect. Uh, we got Bayraktars when we could not get any other weapons from any other Western countries. So that was uh, something so symbolic and special in Ukraine. We had all those nice songs about Bayraktars and all those, you know, special uh, folklore things uh, about uh, Turkey's help to Ukraine. Uh, while the other countries have uh, stepped in with uh, their more sophisticated weapons, uh, MLRS and other types of things, uh, Turkey is not standing out there as an only arms uh, supplier, which is, of course, important. On the other hand, what we're seeing now is Russia, which is getting more and more isolated, Russia, which is turning into pariah state. So uh, any cooperation or any aligning with uh, Russia at this moment will, will only hurt uh, the image and the international position of any country that decides to have cooperation with Russia. I'm not talking here about economic cooperation. I'm not even talking here about energy cooperation, which is obvious for, for the reasons that also Kadir mentioned. There is this dependency, interdependence, or dependency of Turkey and Russia. So uh, we understand the sensitivities and red lines of Turkey here. 
but sometimes the rhetoric that we hear now about uh, the European Union, who is to be blamed for sanctions, who is to be blamed for the um, energy crisis that we have, uh, for the, uh, let's say, grain uh, ships which go to, to the rich countries and not to the poor countries uh, as it uh, had to be, which uh, has also been commented from the Ukrainian side explaining what is going on there that is not necessarily the truth, that that is a Russian propaganda. And then uh, all uh, talks now about any kind of negotiations with Russia, peace talks, um, not uh, having a chance to underestimate uh, Russia as a military power. These are all, in my uh, humble opinion, counterproductive because it does not bring anything, anything to Ukraine and Turkish relations. It does not bring anything to Ukrainian um, stance in this war uh, and also to Turkey's relations with the West. And also in regard with the Turkish um, position vis-a-vis -vis Russia, I cannot think of any other country in the region that would benefit from a weakening Russia as much as Turkey would. Uh, not a collapse of Russia. This is not also as an, an objective of Ukrainians as well, but a weakening uh, military posture of Russia in uh, the uh, currently temporarily occupied Crimea, southern and eastern regions of Ukraine, uh, in the Black Sea generally, which is totally blocked by Russia, so basically turned into the Russian lake, in uh, Russian stands in Libya, Syria, and many other regional conflicts where Turkey and uh, Russia have incompatible interests and are basically fighting against each other, like in the South Caucasus and so on. So I think even talking about this pragmatic point of view for Turkey, it would be a much more a beneficial strategy now to put more weight behind uh, Ukraine, uh, even though we appreciate the political and military support that we have now, and to be very clear about all uh, those crimes which are committed by Russia and which are not acceptable for any member of the international community. So to a certain extent, this balancing uh, policy was possible in the early period of the conflict. I cannot see this balancing policy, uh, even if we're talking about balancing on different levels, differentiating between military, political, diplomatic support to Ukraine, and then economic and energy cooperation with Russia. Any push for uh, peace talks uh, between Ukraine and Russia now, and I'm sure that Russia will push, and I'm sure that Russia will try to use Turkish diplomatic channels to get its message across, it will be counterproductive because for us in Ukraine, it's about calls uh, for negotiations with terrorists because we consider Russia as a terror state and everything which is going on in Ukraine now, it's actually acts of uh, Russian terrorism. For this reason, I think that uh, being very pragmatic and again, thinking about peace and stability in the region, but also about Turkey's own national interests, it's a very high time to be more clear and to be more uh, profound about uh, Turkey's clear aligning with Ukraine and NATO countries and cooperating with Russia on those narrow issues where Turkey cannot afford the luxury of uh, not working with Russia for its own purposes. Kadir, do you want to react? Uh, and sure, sure. Let me just say a couple things. Um, uh, yeah, the Turkey, I, I mean, Rich uh, emphasizes really well. Turkey, you know, has given all the support. Uh, it has it, it has uh, to Ukraine at the military level, at the expense of, there was even a Tur uh, report in Turkish news that, you know, Putin uh, was like, why don't you give us some Bayraktars as well? He had to go to um, even Iran uh, 
to try to you know increase his uh, capabilities but you know so um in terms of this uh, policy of balance i think i tried to differentiate between um you know the economic and then energy uh but when you say Yevgenia, uh, like it's time for Turkey to align with NATO and Ukraine, I don't see as much a united front, to be very honest. Uh, now, given the energy uh, blackmail that Russia is playing on, on Europe uh, and entering winter, um, like there were a lot of reports about Germany's policy and we discussed you know, different European uh, countries' policy. There is no uh, real like NATO decision. NATO decisions are taken with Turkey and Turkey abides by all of them, but the sanctions are being imposed by individual countries and individual countries are, are saying things, but we are not sure how much they're doing. And then because the impact of that uh, on, on Putin has been very minimal. And he has prepared for this day, of course, he has a, he has a lot of cash. Uh, in, you know, sanctions have been uh, unable to prevent him from uh, continuing this operation. And, you know, most analysts I can see are saying he's gonna continue despite, despite all of that. Um, so the sanctions, one, Turkey had, didn't really have the quote-unquote luxury of doing it. Uh, two, they have not been that effective. And three, I'm not saying they shouldn't exist. Uh, don't get me wrong. Uh, three, there has been like that united front has not been exactly united. Especially, let me give you the example. In every initiative uh, of Turkey to try to get a ceasefire, try to get the grain deal, there has been very, very little, actually little to no support from, from the, the West, let's say. The grain deal had to be uh, done through, you know, UN. Uh, I mean, it was essentially a Turkish uh, thing, but UN joined that. Um, so I think for the sake of rhetoric, NATO and US and the West, they are saying the same things at the rhetorical level, but uh, I'm not sure if there is a real um, policy that is united. The US is clear we're gonna support Ukraine, uh, but they're not defining what the parameters of that support is at this point. And I'm not sure if Europe has the same uh, sort of idea to how far, how far support, uh, how long to support uh, Ukraine. Again, I'm not questioning that support at all. I'm just questioning the idea that there is this united front and Turkey is the only outsider, uh, like Rich described, waiting on the fence. I, I kind of want to push back against that kind of uh, description. I'm not saying you created, you, you subscribe to that, but I'm, it's out there. So that's, uh, that's one thing. And the other thing is Russia's, uh, I mean, Turkey has been doing this for a while. Rich mentioned Libya, you know, Azerbaijan, Syria for a long time. At, here, when Turkey makes some sort of uh, gain at, on the ground, 
Russia has, has ways of uh, sort of uh, triggering other things that prevent Turkey. I mean, Turkey has been talking about entering Syria, for instance, past couple months. Uh, there was a meeting in Tehran between Iranian leadership and Russian leadership, and it has proved uh, almost, uh, you know, the Russia and Iran made it kind of much more difficult for Turkey to enter uh, northern Syria. And these things happen like this in, in um, Libya, Syria, Azerbaijan. So on the one hand, you're, um, on the one hand, sorry, some interferences there. Um, right, you know, it, it, it is true that, you know, there is no need to, need for overestimation of Russian capabilities. Turkey actually showed that in Libya, in Syria, elsewhere. But at the same time, uh, Turkey cannot ignore the fact that, you know, Russia still can create serious problems for Turkey in Syria by producing close to a million refugees in northern Syria, among other things uh, in the region. So I think those considerations uh, for, for Turkey's policy, um, uh, that those are important. Okay, uh, Yevgenia, you have a short comment, go ahead. Uh, yeah, just to clarify what I've said, uh, I never said that there is uh, one uh, front and uh, one level of support within NATO, and I absolutely agree with Kadir that we have the United States, for example, or the UK, and we have the Baltic states, and we have Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, or, and Poland, for example, who are helping Ukraine uh, much more than any other countries in the Western Europe, especially if you compare it as a, a percentage and ratio to their GDP and not in total numbers. So for sure, there are different levels of support. There are like countries like Hungary, for example, who are definitely blocking all decisions related to Ukraine. Uh, what I've been talking about is that uh, there is general understanding, I think, uh, of the fact that Russia has to be defeated on the battlefield. There is no way to have a ceasefire or peace talks with Russia if it still uh, has advantage on the battlefield. And it's not about Turkey at all. It's about Russia. Because there, I cannot remember any of the agreements or treaties with Russia that would be kept by Russia. All of them, including the grain deal itself, uh, which was brokered, as you mentioned, by Turkey, it was violated by Russia on the other day after it had been signed. And the same goes for any other agreements. So uh, if we want to have a meaningful negotiations and uh, sustainable peace and not rather a pause in Russian assaults and aggression in the region and in Ukraine, then we first have to have this defeat on the battlefield. In this regard, I would not say the Turkey is sidelined, but it definitely stands out as a, a country which most generally calls for ceasefire, as you mentioned, for uh, having peace negotiations with Russia, which is not uh, even on the table now for Ukraine. First, because we want to liberate all of our territories, and obviously there will be no possibility to liberate them if we have negotiations now. And second, because uh, Russia will never ever abide by those norms and uh, um, any any um, positions in that um, 
provisions in that uh, peace treaty if it uh, see that there is any possibility for it to go on with the aggression. So again, uh, it's not about sanctions. And I mentioned uh, from the very beginning that we realized Turkey's sensitivities about sanctions. It's not about joining this uh, regime, which is kind of EU imposed with Turkey not being a member of the European Union. It's about being very clear uh, with the fact that first we need to have a militarily defeat of uh, Russia. Russian forces in Ukraine, and afterwards, after 100% uh, of Ukrainian territories have been liberated, we can have uh, kind of negotiations or peace talks or talk about the further security arrangements in the region, which in the post-war um, security arrangements, of course, Turkey will also play a very central role, and of course, it remains a very important strategic partner for Ukraine. Very quickly, uh, Kulich, if you don't mind. Yeah, just... Sorry. One, two sentences. Uh, you're right, Yevgenia. That's why I don't think there are calls by Turkey at this point for peace talks. Those were earlier calls, but they continue their relationship. The other thing is that perspective you just outlined about, you know, 100% liberation of Ukrainian territory. That's the policy of Ukraine. But the Western support, I'm not sure if that's what they're committed to. There's a lot of debate outside, like, oh, maybe the East, part of the East will never be taken back, etc. The recent counteroffensive definitely gives encouraging news on that front, maybe. Uh, but that's why I'm saying, you know, NATO countries, the West, uh, including Turkey, have to have some sort of vision and perspective about what, like, what are the parameters, how long we should support them, and once they get there, what should we do? I think in the absence of that clear vision, uh, we are going to continue to see differences between uh, you know, Turkey and others. Rich, a, a question. Uh, there have been debates about the Western support. Do you expect any change in US policy or US support for Ukraine after midterm elections? It's uh, a good question. I think there's been broad bipartisan consensus in support of Ukraine. I think it's one of the rare things that uh, Republicans and Democrats agree on, except for the sort of the fringes on uh, both uh, on the far ends of both parties, that weakening Russia and uh, allowing or enabling and supporting the survival of Ukraine are good things. So I suspect that if there's well, current projections are that the Senate could go either way, uh, and that the House will have a slight Republican majority after the midterms. I don't think that this is going to dramatically change uh, policy, depending on the size of uh, the Republican wave, as they talk about, which normally happens in midterm elections. It's likely, however, that uh, there will be a period of the administration, Biden administration, not really focusing on foreign affairs much for a few months. Uh, so I, I would say that there may be some uh, sort of inattention, uh, but there's not going to be opposition to the U.S. I think the U.S. will continue to try to lead without directly getting involved in the in the hostilities there. I, if I could just add one one point from the earlier conversation, yeah. too, uh, specifically on balance. Uh, we tend to look at this conflict, uh, including the Turkey's role in it, from a binary uh, West and Russia <laughs> perspective, but I don't think that's quite right. Uh, several of the largest countries in the world, including India and China, either want Russia to win or are agnostic at best 
on how bad the invasion is. They just sort of meh. India's increased its uh, uh, energy imports from Russia, for instance. There's the Bolivarian states in Latin America. There's Iran. There's Armenia, for that matter. There, there's all sorts of countries outside of Western Europe, even in the Gulf. And, and Israel's taken sort of a, a middling position on the conflict as well. The further you get from Eastern Europe, the less complete this is. And I, I think that those balancing relationships that each of them have are driven by consideration to some extent similar to Turkey's. Turkey does not really want to see the West empowered by whatever happens here. It wants to see Ukraine win. But if a Russian loss means that Russia no longer uh, plays a balancing role against the West in places like the Middle East or in Latin America, I'm not sure Turkey's on board with that. And, and it's not just that they don't they want to maintain trade with Russia. But when you think about Turkey's experiences in Iraq and in Syria, particularly with the enduring relationship now between the United States and the PKK affiliate in Syria, I think uh, Turkey in some ways feels like in these extra regional uh, conflicts, it, it can have a transactional relationship with Russia that's more predictable than that, that it has with the West and NATO. So it, in that sense, Turkey's re reticence to fully commit to Ukrainian victory reflects a real skepticism about a U.S.-dominated global system. And I think, again, for China, India, and many other countries, their multipolarity for them means that Russia still needs to be an effective actor. I'm not defending that view. All I'm saying is that from a non-Western perspective, that's that's why they have uh, been hesitant to fully isolate Russia and are hesitant to fully uh, hope for their total defeat. For, for my part, I'd love to see Crimea restored to Ukraine, <laughs> as well as Donbass. Rich, another question that we received, what would be the impact of Turkey's current policy in this war to U.S.-Turkey relations? Uh, well, like, like most good things that Turkey does, um, it, will be, it will go unnoticed, unheralded, and unrewarded uh, because Turkey is, let's face it, it's a toxic brand in Washington right now. Uh, there are, you can count them on both hands, and I think you know most of them, people who take a fairly balanced approach to Turkey. But uh, in terms of the things that are friction points, so Eastern Mediterranean right now, even the conflict in Azerbaijan, Armenia, and so forth, there are many voices who will criticize Turkey and uh, accuse Turkey of expansionism, neo-Ottomanism, dictatorial politics, all these uh, perfidy to the West, all these things. And the, those places where Turkey's doing good work, as they did in Afghanistan for 20 years, on behalf of the common cause of NATO, uh, or in the case of Ukraine, which in my view, again, imperfectly, incompletely, but substantially, they have supported Ukraine at a critical time. These things are written off as uh, only in Turkey's self-interest anyway, whereas the, the problem areas uh, and the Eastern Med's very hot right now in this regard, uh, become a new drumbeat uh, to drive a wedge. So I, the U.S. is, I think, uh, under current uh, political dynamics, this not going to respond to Turkey's policy in either a laudatory manner or in a manner that seeks to find new areas of convergence. It's simply going to say, thank you for what you did. Now let's talk about the things you're doing wrong. Kadir, your idea about that? I mean, uh, it's hard to disagree with Rich on this. Um, but, you know, the, the I think we are, we are not going to get to a place where, you know, basically US and Turkey will be happy dandy, right? Uh, as long as some of the, the, you know, broadly the current policies continue, we're going to continue to have friction areas, the tensions, 
Washington has never been really, uh, you know, uh, so hospitable to Turkey, except for certain periods of time in history. So it's hard for Turkey to win in Washington. Uh, but when it comes to regional policies, I think there's been increasing recognition um, on the US side of Turkey's importance, you know, the role in Ukraine, uh, among others, Libya, et cetera. But um, so I think one thing that, you know, the absence of, which is the Biden administration criticizing Turkey about Ukraine, for instance, the absence of that is helpful uh, because that, that's an sort of, they're, tr they're acknowledging it in practice that, you know, Turkey in its policy to, towards the Ukraine war has these complications and complicated interests. So um, if that's not happening, that's a good thing for, for Turkey. And uh, But the, there's the current F-16 deal, the bilateral defense ties. Uh, these are going to be questioned by Congress and how its impact going to be on, you know, uh, Azerbaijan uh, or Israel or regional issues. So that indirectly we will continue to have that kind of um, you know impact but uh, Turkey's role in on, in Ukraine which has been largely positive we all acknowledge that I think uh, that's being taken into consider consideration in Washington but it's not uh, you know making it uh, it's not enough basically for Turkey to to be promoted in this town it takes a lot more but I think like Rich mentioned, those days are pretty much over because many countries, including Turkey, see a much more multipolar polar world where you know Russia, China, and others have to be taken into consideration when you're making your strategic calculations. Um, so um, I think it will have some sort of positive impact, but uh, it's hard for it to be one winning thing uh, for Turkey. Uh, Rich, a quick question. The last two questions we have. Uh, Anne Phillips asks, will renewed fighting between Armenia and Azerbaijan alter, alter Turkey's calculations? I, I don't think so at this stage because the status quo uh, in the, the Caucasus and Nagorno-Karabakh and the surrounding districts of Azerbaijan has shifted so dramatically in favor of the uh, Azerbaijani and Turkish uh, positions, or frankly, their policies since the 2020 war. I think there's frictions uh, that are coming out now because of implementation or failure of implementation on some aspects of the, the agreement, but really it's because there's no comprehensive settlement. I think uh, Turkey will uh, and Azerbaijan will feel uh, justified in their in their current positions. They feel they, they accuse Armenia of failing to follow up on its uh, commitments uh, during the ceasefire negotiations. Uh, unless there was a strategic miscalculation by Azerbaijan to actually start, which has been alleged by the Armenian side, although I don't think there's proof of it yet, to actually start seizing Armenian territory in Armenia proper, I don't see this changing the existing status quo. Uh, so Turkey, I think my understanding of their policy is that they view Georgia, Azerbaijan, and Ukraine all in the similar light, which is their important sort of uh, regional anchors for Turkish policy that help to mitigate against Russian influence. And the current status quo for them, certainly in the Caucasus, is, is a positive one. And uh, last question to Yevgenia. 
there is a question. Would a reasonable deal to end the war be, one, Russia leaves Ukraine, including Donbass, and two, a new real referendum be held in Crimea, whether it wants to be with Russia or part of Ukraine? Uh, I have a very short question that the only reasonable end to this conflict will be getting back to the only internationally recognized borders of Ukraine, which are the borders of 1991, including Crimea and Donbass. Uh, it's not only position of the Ukrainian government, it's also position of the Ukrainian people who are not willing already to compromise on territories. And it's important to understand that we're talking not only about territories, we're talking about those people who live on the occupied territories. So when we're talking about trading regions, uh, whatever might be the name for it, uh, I mean, any kind of uh, agreements, any kind of arrangements, we're also talking about those uh, people, Ukrainians, who will be tortured by Russians, who will be killed by Russians. In Mariupol, for example, which uh, is now uh, unfortunately still under occupation, we have so far evidences of uh, 78,000 people being killed, civilians, given the population of 500,000 people. So it's, it's a genocidal war, uh, and there is no uh, chance for Ukraine to end up in compromising on Crimea and Donbass. Um, if I may very uh, briefly, just a short reaction to what has been said so far with the multipolarity argument, and I uh, pretty much agree with that. Uh, of course, uh, there are many other countries. We can also name uh, North Korea, we can name Eritrea, we can name all other countries which are on very different position towards Russia. The question is uh, where Turkey itself uh, sees its role. And I think that in Ukraine, it has played a very constructive role so far. And I would very much disagree here with um, reach uh, with all due respect to your opinion. I think that this role has actually got uh, quite a positive reaction in Washington as well. The normalization mechanism between Turkey and the US uh, took place in April after Turkey started playing this role in Ukraine. We had a meeting between President Biden and President Erdogan on the sidelines of Madrid summit. We've had a lot of um, statements from the uh, State Department commanding and praising Turkey's positive role um, in Ukraine. So I think there is still quite a lot of uh, space for this cooperation, which would be uh, mutually beneficial for uh, Ukraine, Turkey, and uh, the US. Um, and with the multipolarity, uh, it's also strengthening Turkey's position if it is a very proactive uh, member of the transatlantic community of NATO, if it's cooperating with the European Union, which is still the largest trade partner of Turkey, it's not Russia, it's the EU. So here, I think that, again, talking about Turkey's own perspective and Turkey's own pragmatic interests, it would be very much in having let's say, uh, Alex in the both uh, camps, but uh, at the same time, uh, trying to, to, to bring more weight uh, behind uh, Ukraine and being sure that uh, it ends up on the right side of the history. Rich, do you want to react before we finish our panel? I think Evgeny is uh, right on 99% of what she said, the 1%. I would say, yes, there was some praise for Turkey and a bilat with uh, with Biden, but that's it. It, it. The praise has been and the, the improvement in relations has been restricted to Ukraine. Everything else that matters to Turkey, the Eastern Med, the Aegean, defense industrial sales, uh, economic ties, there's been either no progress or or moving backwards. So that's not I, I, I should I'll 
edit my comment to say I agree with you that it's been received well in Washington that Turkey has helped Ukraine, but I would add that that, that still has done little to nothing for the broader bilateral relationship. Thank you very much. And thank you for all for being part of this panel. Thank you, Kadir, Rich, Yevgenia, for joining thank us you. today. And thank you for the participants, uh, those who asked questions on the Zoom and those who followed us on social media. We will see you again uh, in our next panel. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.